Good morning. Good to see everybody here today. My name is Diana Wilding, and I've been attending Habits for 22 years. I am married for 49 years, and we were blessed with three children and four grandchildren. And I will be approaching my lecture today in two sections. Living as God's People is our title for today's lesson, and we will be looking at how the Israelites should respond in their remembering of what God has done for them and what living as God's people looked like for them. Then we will explore how we, as followers of Christ, are to respond to living as God's people as well. And out of the three and a half chapters we have in our lesson this week, there are many areas that we've already covered in previous lessons. So today we will explore primarily chapter 26. I was also given the subtitle of We as Followers of Christ are set apart to show distinct living through our circumstances. So we will explore when the walls of life come crashing down on you, what does distinct living through your circumstances look like? And the Lord has also prompted me to share with you two events that occurred in my life between April 15, 2015 and September 2015. One event was a mountaintop moment and the other a deep valley moment. And I hope as I speak today that your eyes will be moved towards the Lord as I tell you my story and how he has sustained me during both of those moments. So let us start our journey together while I open in prayer. Precious Heavenly Father, as I come to you today, I ask that you Open our hearts to receive all that you desire for us to learn about your grace. I thank you for each woman listening. And may they take a nugget of what is said here today. And Lord, use it for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So in these chapters, we've been given statutes and ordinances that are actually blueprints for worshiping God. I like to think of them as pearls of wisdom coming directly from God that's been given for their protection and for their continuity of life. We've arrived at a place in our story where the former generation of Israel has died away in the wilderness. And just in case the new generation has forgotten, many of the laws are now being repeated before they will enter into the promised land. In chapter 26, verse 1, the Israelites are told they will be entering into the inheritance that God has given them. They are to take possession of the land, and they are to settle in it. We are showing here in this text that the entire nature and identity of a whole people is about to be changed. We've read about their forefathers' attitude toward God during their 40 years of wandering in the desert. 
Often, they did not look like people that were remembering what mighty works God had done for them. These were a people brought out of Egypt to be set apart to show distinct living to the pagan world that was around them. So let's review what, our, what their actions and attitude looked like during their troubled times. Well, they grumbled about their living conditions. They complained about their type of food. They got really tired of manna. They complained they were going to die of thirst in the desert. They grumbled about waiting too long while Moses was up on the mountaintop with God. So they built a golden calf so that they could have it as their idol. They were fearful of the giants that were in Canaan, and they felt that the fortress could never be taken, in spite of what God had already shown them. But regardless of these grumblings, and because of his great love for them, God chose to extend grace, and he listened to what Moses had to say on behalf of his people. God chose, through his mercy, to continue taking care of his people and to honor his covenant with their forefathers. And often, it is painful to gather that experience, but our faith is never showing more clarity, clearly to others than during our struggles or our circumstances. We can choose to be a beacon of light, a means of glorifying God through those circumstances, or we can withdraw within ourselves and become grumblers, just like the Israelites did. With that in mind, let's, let's review what Matthew 5, 14 through 16 tells us. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. How then shall we live? When difficult circumstances arrive, do you put your light under a basket, withdrawing from the world? Or do you put it on a stand so it can shine brightly before others, allowing God to be glorified through your light? So this week, what did our chapters tell us about God and what he expects from his followers then and now? Well, our theme this week brings us to that question. When we come to Christ and surrender our heart and mind to him, we know that we are set apart for him. Our hearts will be transformed in order to show his glory through our actions, our distinct living through our own circumstances. Living a life set apart for God is illustrated in Deuteronomy and is also in Samuel, where we read about the strands of blue cords that hung from the four corners of the Israelite garments. Those wearing the blue cords represented themselves as distinguished or set apart from others. The blue cords acted as a visual reminder that their words and actions were a representation of God to a watching world. Today, we don't 
wear blue cords or any type of garment that speaks to our faith. But for us today, our words, our actions are what speaks loudly in representing our faith in God. The first fruits offering called for the people's gracious and willing recognition of their transformation. They had been delivered from being homeless, anonymous wanderers to a people of the land of flowing with milk and honey. The first fruits offering is to be an outward demonstration given by those who have been redeemed and were provided for by God. The offering required here is an offering made after the people have been in the promised land for a while. After the Israelites have experienced living in and on the land long enough so that they could settle, plant, and then harvest, then they were expected to appreciate firsthand the richness of his gift that was given by him. Once they had experienced the richness of their harvest, then they would have a new wisdom, an outlook of maturity that would color their view of the first fruit offering. Clearly, this offering was based on the strength of a people who had struggled and they have lived through it. For the first generation that would live in the promised land, this was not an offering of blind belief, but one that had come out of their experience. Now, with all of that in mind, I want us to consider what, pass, what the passage in Romans 6.23 says about biblical worship. Paul says, God has given us the gift of salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And worship is our gift back to him for all that he has done for us in Jesus Christ. When the Israelites come with their basket of first fruits, their response should be appreciation for his redemption, his restoration, and his rewards. So in Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 8, once they'd presented their baskets to the priest, then you shall declare for the Lord your God. This is what they should declare. My father was a wandering Armenian, and he went down into Egypt with a few people and lived there, and they became a great nation, powerful and numerous. But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, putting us to hard labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our misery, toil, and oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with miraculous signs and wonders. And as we read these instructions to the Israelites in these verses, let's look at God's redemption. So by bringing the basket, he is showing appreciation for how God brought his people from nothing and has given them everything. He also brings his basket showing appreciation for how God moved in power to deliver his people 
from their bondage. And as the worshiper brings his basket, he is remembering that he has been redeemed in Egypt by the blood of a lamb. And you can read about that in Exodus 12 where it talks about the Passover. And so let's look at these truths for today's believers. As this same blessing of redemption has been given to every redeemed child of Christ through Jesus Christ. And I've included those, the scriptures that match those um, in your handout that you have. And so the five ways we have experienced the blessing of redemption in our life is we were born into the slavery of sin but have been redeemed. Number two, Jesus came into this world and shed his own blood for our redemption. And number three, he intervened in our lost condition and called us unto him, making us alive together with Christ. Number four, he delivered us from the old life of sin and made us a new creature in Jesus Christ. And number five, he brought us out of Adam and placed us in Jesus, in whom we have redemption. So when we approach him in worship, we should always come to him mindful of the blessing of our redemption and all that he has done for us in saving our souls. The Israelites are also to have appreciation for his restoration. So what would an Israelite worshiper remembering and appreciating look like? The Israelite worshiper would remember how God parted the Red Sea, how their fathers were fed manna from heaven, how God had led his people with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And he gave them water from a rock and he defeated all of their enemies. He, could, he would also remember how God brought them out of a place of desolation and into a place of blessing. So what are some of the things we should remember about our restoration? Well, we need to remember that the Lord brought us out of death to eternal life. He delivered us from a place of separation and isolation. He has brought us into a place of spiritual intimacy with him. And he has restored us to a place of perfect fellowship with him. We, as believers, have been restored through the blood of Jesus Christ. And that same appreciation should be remembered by us as well. And next... We, as well as the Israelites, should appreciate his rewards and his blessings. You'll read about that in Deuteronomy 26, verses 2 through 9. The Israelite worshiper was to remember that God had blessed him with a land, a place of peace, prosperity, and blessing. He had settled them in a place where all their needs were being met. And it was God's desire for them to be grateful for all the rewards that had been given. And isn't the same true for us today? Haven't we been given rewards beyond measure? Not only did God save our souls, but he has blessed us beyond belief. 
In fact, Ephesians 1, 3 tells us that he has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. So let's just consider some of the rewards and blessings he has given us in Jesus Christ. First, he's given us everlasting life. And your name is in the Lamb's book of life. We've been adopted into his family. We have his presence. We have his provisions. We have his love, his forgiveness, his advocacy, his indwelling presence, and his promise of a home in glory. These are blessings beyond measure. This passage in Deuteronomy 26, 2 through 9 also has something to say about the attitudes that should grip the worshiper's heart as he or she approaches God. So what should that look like? Well, we are to come with our baskets full of gratitude, full of obedience, humility, and adoration. The Israelites were commanded to approach God with the best of the land. The worshiper was to take of the first of all the fruit, put it into a basket, and go to the place of worship that God would choose. Notice the three words, take, put, go. This is a picture of appreciation, gratitude, and obedience put into action. In addition to gratitude and obedience, the Israelite worshiper was commanded to recall his humble beginnings. He was, put, he was to put on no airs, but he was to remember that everything he was, everything he had, and everything he ever hoped to be was the pure gift of grace that had been given by God. We, like the Israelites, must remember that everything we have, everything we are, and everything we will ever achieve is the result of his amazing, life-changing grace that's in our lives. And Hebrews 13, 15 tells us, through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips that acknowledge his name. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> so I think we can all agree that in the last five months in the book of Deuteronomy, we've seen a lot of repetition. However, I think you'd also agree that just like the Israelites, we need a lot of reminding. So during, our st during a study that we did a few years back in Exodus, it was placed on my heart that God wanted me to remember many things. Not just God's attributes, but who he is in relationship to me. First, I began writing down, what do I know to be true of God? That's when the I knows began to form. Soon, 
the I knows had moved into my prayer time and during my self-talk. Now you guys know we all do self-talk. Those practiced and memorized I knows became a habit in my everyday life, using them during the wonderful times of praise and when I felt troubled. So just allow me to share, I'll share five of those that I have used. I've used hundreds, but we don't have time for all of those. So here are five of the I knows that I use. I know that I am significant to you, Lord, who created me, and that your blessings have and will continue to flow within my life. I know you are the Lord of my life and the center of all that I am. I know that you will never leave me or forsake me as I struggle, stumble, and fall down the path called my life. I know that your mercies and your grace are showered upon me throughout my daily circumstances. And I know you know my heart, but because of your love, mercy, and grace, you still love me anyway. So I experienced a lot of comfort from using the I knows and was grateful they had embedded themselves into my everyday life. But only God knew in what ways he would choose to use those statements of assurance and affirmation in order to comfort me in my life. So as I now journey with you to the mountaintop story and then take you with me into the deep valley, Please hear my heart when I say that none of what I talk about here is meant to describe how we are to grieve. How we personally grieve is as unique as our fingerprints. But what I do understand and know in my heart is that the grief is easier if you allow your friend Jesus to walk alongside of you. So... On April 28th, 2015, my daughter Gina, who many of you know and have prayed for, had another spinal surgery to stabilize her head and neck area. A few months earlier, she and her husband had left Indiana and moved to Alabama for his job. Gina's surgeries are so involved and difficult to perform that she's gone to the Washington, D.C. area to have her last three surgeries. The Lord had led her to a surgeon that was pioneering the techniques for the intricate surgeries that she needed. We soon discovered that he was also a man of faith and was very open about his beliefs. He had made a point to pray with us before each one of her surgeries. Ten days before her surgery was to take place in D.C., she called me crying, sharing sharing that her husband, excuse me, sharing that her husband had asked her for a divorce and he was refusing to be with her when she had her surgery. Now, my husband and I had planned on being there the day of her surgery 
and to stay two days after. But now we had to scurry around to figure out how to be there for the required 11 days that she would have to stay. We also knew we'd need to be with her around the clock and would each be taking 12-hour shifts. We had been with her through her complicated surgeries before and knew that she could not be left alone in her room. The day arrived and after six hours in surgery and two hours in recovery, they took us to her room. Suda, her nurse, who we had known from past surgeries, was taking her vitals and making her comfortable. Jean and I began discussing that he needed to go get a bite to eat and then sleep at the hotel for a few hours before he would return and take the night shift, and then I would go back and rest. Once Suda had finished settling Gina in, she turned off the lights and closed the door and left. Gina and I were alone in a dimly lit room. <clears throat> when after a few moments, she began to cough and asked me to get her some water. She took tiny sips, but her coughing became worse. I started to become concerned because during her past surgeries, she had, perform she had problems with her throat wanting to close off after it had been injured from the anesthesiologist trying to intubate her. Their struggles was to get Gina's neck back far enough to insert the tube. During previous surgeries, they had implanted a metal rod and a rib bone to stabilize her neck and her head. The result of that necessary procedure now caused problems in getting her head leaned back far enough to insert the tube. In a matter of seconds, she went from coughing to grabbing her throat, grasping for air. In the darkened room, I frantically looked for the call button, but could not find it. It, is, as it had been tucked underneath her bedding when Suda was making her comfortable. Gina's room was at the end of a long hallway that was shaped like an L, and her room was at the end of the toe. I, I knew it was too far for me to run to the nurse's station for help. In the distance, I heard someone screaming for help. When I realized, when I realized that someone was me, After hearing my screams, someone briefly appeared in our room, then abruptly turned and ran away, down the hallway yelling for help. By the time Suda, her nurse, had arrived, Gina's lips were dark blue, her face was gray, and she was barely taking a breath. Suda ran back out into the hallway and yelled for them to get oxygen stat and as she returned to Gina's bedside, the room had become completely still as Gina had, as Gina had finally stopped struggling to breathe. Now, as I was looking at her peaceful and serene face, I knew I was losing her. I felt helpless, but I knew that only God could save her, so I prayed as I anxiously begged her to wake up and breathe. The only, the only I know that I said was, 
I know you are here, Lord. I know you are here. While Suda began administering the oxygen, I heard those dreaded words on the loudspeaker that you hear on TV shows, code blue, and I knew they were on their way to our room. Reluctantly, I moved away from her bedside into the shadows as doctors, nurses, and machinery invaded our room. But before I left her side, I heard her take a breath, like someone coming up out of being underwater for a very long time. I praised God at that moment. Then her breathing stopped again. They waited beside her bed with their paddles ready and the tracheotomy tube in their hand ready to use. But she took another breath. When we heard her take that second breath, her surgeon and I locked eyes, and I knew he had been praying too. Her heart rate, blood pressure, and oxygen levels were dangerously low. So we all stood in this very crowded space watching to see if her life-sustaining vitals would return to normal. You see, they didn't want to use the paddles as that would have destroyed the work they had just done on her neck and her spine. As the whole room watched in silence, her vitals began to normalize. The silence was broken by the activity of hooking her up to additional machines in preparation for her to be taken to ICU where she would spend the next four days. When I had to leave her bedside because of the Code Blue team arriving, I had called Jean saying only, you need to get back here now. So when he walked into her room, right before she was leaving for ICU, I broke down sobbing and was unable to tell him what had happened. Although he didn't have the full story yet, he saw all the equipment and knew something serious had happened. Because she was now in ICU, we weren't allowed to stay overnight with her. So as I was leaving that night, I found myself walking down a hallway towards a lady that was coming into ICU. As she came closer, she stopped and said, I think you must have had some very good news tonight. I looked at her for a second, and then I replied, Yes, I did. My daughter stopped breathing for several minutes and after, after she'd had her surgery, but the Lord's will was that she would live. She smiled back at me and said, Well, I knew something good had happened. You have this aura, this glow all over your face that I could see coming down the corridor. And we stood there as strangers, but we hugged, and you know I love hugs. At that moment, we both had tears glistening in our eyes as we wished each other well, and we went on our own separate ways. It was just a brief moment, a one-minute encounter. But although that encounter was brief, for several weeks I found myself remembering my walk down that corridor with my face glowing with gratitude. And I wondered, what would my face have looked like had God's will been different for Gina and that precious breath of life not returned to her? Would I have been able to show gratitude? Would I have known that God was walking beside me no matter what had happened? I wondered. You see, during that event, 
I felt like God had allowed me to dodge the big one. You know, that event that all mothers dread ever happening to their children. Whether it's a child that's never been born and never experienced life outside its mother's womb, or whether it's a child lost at any age, the pain is beyond description. So I understood that it could easily have been a Deep Valley moment, except for God's grace and his will for Gina's life to continue. So four and a half months went by and Gina was still living in Alabama and was still healing from her surgery as well as the emotional upheaval from her divorce that was in the works. And me, I had added a few more I knows to my list. But tragedy, it has a way of creeping up on you with no warning and you have no time to prepare for it. It's sort of like a jack-in-a-box where the jovial music of life is playing out in your everyday footsteps when pop comes that tragedy. And that's how it visited us on September 15th, 2015. <clears throat> My husband, Gene, and I had just finished working in Fort Wayne and that morning, and we drove back to Zionsville. By two that afternoon, Jean had left to go down to our home by Potoka Lake, and I was alone in my apartment. At 7.20 that evening, my daughter-in-law called and said that my son Scott had been killed instantly in a car crash. And at 7.21, my life, as I had known it, had taken a new path. My daughter-in-law struggled to gently explain what had happened and concluded our short conversation by telling me that both of their sons, Justin and Brandon, were with her and they needed my husband and my son, Zach, to come to their home in Spencer as quickly as they could get there. I assured her that I would call them. Now, it would sound better if I could tell you that I immediately went to my I knows but I did not. I paced the floor saying, no, 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 Lord, no. But I felt his presence, and I knew that it was just me and God standing there. So I finally started to soothe myself with the I knows. You see, I needed to calm myself enough so that I could make those dreaded calls the ones that were about to shatter the lives of all of those that I loved. And it's during though that unspeakable grief that you realize you are functioning on autopilot. Everything becomes dim. Your mind goes numb. You feel as though your light has been snuffed out, hidden under that basket that is now just filled with grief. But in spite of the dimness, you know what you know to be true of God. That knowledge is already there, secure within your heart and your head. I'll give you three examples of the strange things I did the first few days 
And I know that there are those of you here that can relate to what I'm saying. I drove to the funeral home to help plan his funeral. I got out of my car, realized it was slowly moving forward. So I had to jump back in, put it in park, and shut off the engine. I walked into a store to buy picture frames for pictures of Scott and made it to the door to leave when Scott, when Jean asked me, aren't you going to pay for those? And then the night after the showing, I exited my car and went into my apartment. When Jean arrived a few minutes later in his car, he came into the apartment and said, did you know you left your front car door open? No, I had no idea. So that's what I mean when I say you are functioning on autopilot. Thankfully, God had become my pilot 40 years earlier. So I surrendered myself to be carried through by what I knew to be true of him. And during those first few days, I only felt sadness. But there were those around me that said I responded with joy and a peace. But reflecting back, it was apparent that God had supplied that joy and peace through the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. I understood that I was a follower of Christ and that he was with me. But in my numbness, I knew I did not possess the strength to do it on my own. Slowly, the details began to come to us regarding the accident, bringing with it confusion, anger, disbelief. The 31-year-old man that came seven feet over into Scotts Lane on a two-lane highway had admitted to police that he had stopped on his way home from work and smoked meth. Then he got back on the road and a short time later crashed into Scott. He also admitted that this was a daily practice of his and he had smoked meth the previous day right before he had had an accident involving another car on the very same highway. Because there were no injuries in that accident, the police had no legal right to drug test him. But the next day, when the same police showed up to a fatal accident on the same highway, and they saw the same man that was in yesterday's accident, they were horrified. They wished they had had cause the day before to drug test him. For some in our family, it became a daily struggle to cope with the anger that was permeating their emotions, causing them to decide this did not have to happen. Although I understood their anger, I was so filled with grief and sadness that I had no room left for anger or blame. I chose to block out thoughts about that young man that had been instrumental in Scott's death. To cope, I looked up verses that dealt with anger and found James 1.20. For the anger of man does not produce righteousness, the righteousness of God. I thought back to this verse whenever the thoughts of anger and blame would try to creep into my heart. I knew that all my energy had to be directed toward accepting this tragedy, this tragedy as an event that was God's will. And I knew it would be a long and exhausting journey.
And we can all certainly understand that it's, a, it's natural for anger on, to arrive on such a scene as this one. I've witnessed how anger insinuates itself into our life, allowing our emotions to totally take over. If you have a propensity for anger, then it's got a foothold into your circumstances before you're even aware that it's arrived. And worry, that keeps us focused on earthly things. Anger, not properly dealt with, keeps us focused on how we will make things right. The couldas, the shouldas in our lives lead us to think we can change things. Some said, if Scott had swerved to the right to miss the car, then he, if Scott had not swerved to the right to miss the, and miss the car, then he would have hit him head on, inflating his airbags, and that might have protected him. And then some said, if Scott had been driving a millisecond faster or slower, the man would have hit his truck someplace other than right in the passenger door where Scott was sitting. But I've learned that we have no control over the milliseconds in our lives. Only God does. Now we get to the big question that often enters our thoughts when tragedies occur. And it's the elephant in the room. The why. Now although the question why has plagued everyone that has ever lived, and we've all wrestled with it, we cannot allow ourselves to linger in the why without it becoming a stumbling block. Job's friends spent a lot of time trying to come up with the why in Job's life. But we have learned from our scripture that the sovereign, almighty God will not be accountable to man. When the why question creeped into my thoughts, I drew comfort from the fact that Jesus asked on the cross, my God, my God, why? Have you forsaken me? I understood that asking that question of God was simply a part of our being human. In our study of Deuteronomy, we have seen how the current Israelites had to watch the previous generation all die away. Which, if you think about it, that was their parents, their grandparents, aunts, uncles. These were their relatives. And I know there had to have been days when they wallowed in the wise, but they did not stay there because they had others around them to help them focus on the promise and the destination of being delivered into the land of their milk and honey. When you are suffering, one of the greatest ways God will show his love for you is through the friends and family that will gather around you with love and encouragement. And oh, have I felt that. While you're numb and walking through that dimly lit valley, you've been given the gift of people. So let them love you, encourage you, and let them know how much you appreciate being that recipient of their gift that God's given. I find that often while we're experiencing a difficult situation, we struggle trying to gain insight. But many times, insight cannot be gained until after we have finished walking through that difficult circumstance. Then we can see how God has used our brokenness to complete his big picture. 
out of these painful experiences often comes a new and fuller outlook of maturity. And this new wisdom leads to new eyes that see more clearly the good that has come out of your tragedy. I know that our family has experienced his bringing good from our tragedy. And I'm sure many of you have experienced that as well when you've gone through something. You see, experiences, even painful ones, are important in our lives. They make our heads smarter and our hearts more tender. So we have a fresh view of what is excellent and holy about God and his personal relationship with us. So as the sadness and dimness began to lift, I felt the Lord nudging me to move forward toward the good things that were to come. I became aware that this was a walk of distinct living that I needed to get right. You see, I never wanted God to do a do-over on this one. So I became intentional about what I needed to do and to learn from this, ex this painful experience. Just like the Israelites, I needed to be reminded. So he reminded me of three things. He reminded me that I could trust him. Too much had happened and I was feeling insecure. He reminded me that I needed to accept his will. And I realized that I was thankful that I didn't have to make that decision of which one of my children would go. And he told me I needed to praise and worship him, even in my sadness. And so I set about to do all of those things. And in February last year, five months after Scott's death, my 46-year-old brother was found dead at his home from a heart attack. Our family again was thrown into grief and shock as we tried to muddle through. So I needed to take my newfound experience that I had been given and focus on my 85-year-old mother as I knew what she would go through with losing her son. It was now my turn to use my new wisdom of experience and be the comforter instead of the comforted. And in four days after my brother was buried, our family and many friends of Scott's packed a courtroom for the sentencing of the man that had been convicted of Scott's wrongful death. He will be serving six years in prison. And during that 10 month, and during that 10 months, God held my hand when he allowed me to experience the intense gratitude and thankfulness on that mountaintop with Gina. And he held my hand when he led me into the darkest valley I had ever walked. But during neither time was I ever left alone. God's tender desire is to walk with us in our pain. And if you start to move away, he will pursue you and bring you back. He wants to be there to celebrate with you during your mountaintop moments and to love you tenderly in your valley of brokenness. Let's look back to last week. We read Ephesians about putting on the armor of God 
which is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, your feet fitted for readiness, the shield of faith, and the helmet of salvation. So as you leave here and go to your classes, I want you to remember that God's grace will always precede your circumstances. And experiencing that grace is like putting on the armor of God and finding that it has been custom made just for you and your circumstances. Thank you, everyone, for being here today. You are dismissed and enjoy your classes. <laughs>